We read in Daniel chapter 3, verses 8 to 30. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold that you built. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar Kenezer said to them, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, uh, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. But he said, look, I see four walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. The Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against their god be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted them in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
In such an unreliable world, it is hard to approach life with confidence. For example, this past year, uh, my family has lost faith in McDonald's. (laughs) Not necessarily the one in Jasper, but most McDonald's. Uh, as a family of four, we actually, we, we still love the easy quickness of their meals. Like, we can get our kids fries and they're happy. Um, but we've discovered that uh, they rarely have an ice cream machine that works. Uh, a few weeks ago, we promised our kids to get ice cream on the way home from a family event on the other side of Atlanta. It was Sunday, so Chick-fil-A was closed. So we didn't go to Chick-fil-A. We couldn't go to Chick-fil-A. Um, so we, we tried three different locations on the way home, basically traveling through the suburbs from Gwinnett uh, County back to here, and all of them said the same thing. Sorry, the machine's broken. <coughs> we have no idea when it will get fixed. This has been such a problem for the McDonald's franchise uh, that one man invented an app on your phone that shows which locations still have machines that work. Uh, like, it's that serious uh, a problem. And what's crazy is that it's never a lot. There's like one in your area that might work. So we've made a vow uh, to never ask for ice cream there, so we won't be disappointed when they tell us, sorry, not available. In this broken world, we all experience these kinds of disappointments in a variety of ways. But our frustration makes sense when we recognize the human heart is designed to trust. Our lives revolve around those things and people and institutions in which we place our faith. We have an implicit confidence the grocery store will have food for our family. We trust uh, that our, our, our family, our, our, our mother and father, our siblings and children will love us even when we're not our best. We hope that our employers will treat us fairly. Our government will safeguard our freedom. Our church will always preach about Jesus. But our experience teaches us that uncertainty and unreliability dominate our world. Our cars break down. Our health fails us. Even when we follow the doctor's orders, friends and family still sometimes let us down. Sickness still comes, death is always present. The government seems prone to corruption and churches are not immune from making mistakes. The virtue of faith, however, defies the broken nature of this world by teaching us not only who, whom we can rely upon, but how to maintain our belief and identity despite living in a world that is always changing. As Christians, faith means uh, two main things. First, accepting the gospel as the truth, a a standard set of beliefs about our God, about our world, and our, our place in it. But faith also teaches us how to persevere and endure, grounding our hope for the future, not merely in what's happening to us in the moment, but in the unchanging reality of God's grace and love. 1 Peter 2.9 describes a life of faith like this. He says, this, uh, Peter talks about what it means to live in this world as Christians. And he says, you are a, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Because we believe that God is good and comes to redeem his children and restore this world, faith frees us to become a particular kind of people, to rise above this broken and inconsistent world and point to Jesus, the one person who will never, ever let us down, who is always there for us. In our scripture today, three friends show us how faith works and can work in our unreliable world, how faith can remain steady even in the face of extraordinary external pressure. So a little bit of the history, the backgrounds of uh, this story. Although Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego serve in the court of the king, their lives uh, began uh, much further back in Israel, their home and native country. They were taken as children by the Babylonians when the Babylonian army invaded and conquered Israel. And they joined God's exiled people as slaves in a foreign land. During this terrible time where the people of God found themselves far from home, these exiles maintained their connection with one another. They built underground communities and they preserved their faith as well as they could apart from the temple back in Jerusalem. And they trusted. These people trusted that the Lord would one day release them from their enslavement and lead them back home to the promised land, the land that they had been promised so long ago by their Lord. But until that day arrived, their God had given them an unusual command. Through Jeremiah, the Lord declared to them uh, this. He said, this is what you need to do while you are in exile. To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters and marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for an its Welfare, you will find your welfare. Instead of making plans to escape or rebel, instead of trying to get back home, the Lord commands his people to bless the city in which he'd placed them. Their God commands them to not just survive, not just exist, but try to flourish. Bless everybody that they meet. Charged with this directive, Daniel and three friends found themselves in a unique position when the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar at that time, employed them as his advisors. Now, whenever Babylon conquered a nation, and especially Nebuchadnezzar, he routinely recruited the best and the brightest to serve in his own government. It was kind of a brilliant move after you've conquered somebody. After three years of training, Daniel and his friends exceeded expectations and proved themselves to be what Daniel 1 relates as 10 times better in every matter of wisdom and understanding than every recruit and current advisor on the king's court. Okay, that is pretty good. That's a high standard. They exceed the standard. They're wiser. They're more diligent. They are uh, more clever than even the king's current advisors. So this kind of echoes the story of Joseph and Esther, if you know those stories from the Old Testament. Uh, But Daniel interprets a dream bothering the king, and all four, Daniel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were promoted to positions of authority. 
Daniel became a personal advisor to Nebuchadnezzar, and his friends found themselves directing the affairs of the capital city, making sure that everything ran well. By using their talents to help the king, they obeyed the Lord's command to bless the city in which they lived, and they also helped the Israelites that remained slaves. Sadly, blessing the city while also maintaining their faith led them into conflict with the king's other advisors and eventually the king himself. So one day, Nebuchadnezzar created a statue of gold 90 feet tall of himself. Uh, He thought highly of himself, a little bit. He thought he was not just a good king, he thought he was uh, a bit of a god, and he said uh, he made a law, declared a law, that whenever music played, everybody had to stop what they were doing and worship the statue. Again, a little bit of a megalomaniac. Anybody who failed to do so would be thrown into a fiery furnace. So during the dedication of the statue, the very first time that all of this music plays, again, you know, that he talks about a long list of all the music that is employed, all the instruments that are employed. During the very first time this happens, uh, everybody uh, in the king's court, except these three Jewish advisors, began to worship the statue. Immediately accused of treason, these three friends are brought before the king for a conversation the original Hebrew describes as heated, which is a bit of a spiritual pun, considering you're about to be thrown into a furnace. He asked them if it's true they won't bow down, warning them that if they fail to obey again, they will be thrown into the fire. And he also challenges their God, asking, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? If you can picture this, I can sort of imagine the king standing in front of an orchestra saying, all right, look, they're going to play again. You need to bow down or you're in the furnace. The king was confident that they would relent because they had too much to lose. He was confident because he had all the power and the authority. He was confident in his own, uh, in his own abilities. But the king was wrong. He had misplaced his faith. Calmly, these three friends defy the most powerful man in the world, not because they were confident in themselves, but because they placed their faith in the promises of their eternally consistent God. Now, this is far from our idea of self-confidence. And they confess their survival depends on the faithfulness of the Lord who promises to rescue his children. Notice, too, how they defend their actions. They don't argue. They don't seek a legal loophole. They, they don't attempt flattery to try to cool the king down or his, you know, cool his anger. Instead, they proclaim the truth upon which their entire lives had been built. They say, our God is faithful. If you throw us in the furnace, we believe our God can save us. And this is the most, I think, remarkable part of their statement. They said, But even if he doesn't, we will remain faithful to the one who has always been faithful to us. They were under no illusions that death might be the result here. So their response reveals the source of their confidence, and it teaches us a little bit about the virtue of faith in three ways. The first is this. Their confidence flowed from their devotion They're already present devotion to the Lord. Similar to Daniel, their relationship with God filled every free moment. 
Daniel 6 relates that they too got down on their knees three times a day to pray and give thanks. There they recalled the mighty acts of the Lord. They remembered their God was not only powerful, but full of mercy and love that he didn't forget their children, his children. They'd remember the Lord's instructions in Deuteronomy to know that the Lord your God is faithful, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. They held on to the promises of their king, David, who wrote in the Psalms that his love endures forever. In these moments, they learned that the steadfast Lord, love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Even though they were serving the king of Babylon on a daily basis, their devotion uh, remained. And that devotion helped them remember the goodness of their Lord. Their devotion helped them remember and how to practice faith. Second, their faith rested on the foundation of who they were and to whom they belonged. When they entered the king's service, their Hebrew names were actually changed. The king's program aims to uh, fully assimilate every recruit, every person who was recruited into his government, into the Babylonian way of life. And so everybody, no matter where you were from, were given Babylonian names. The culture in which Daniel and his friends lived uh, continually worked to erase their identity as God's children. But despite their success, their real names pointed to whom they belong. Shadrach's real name was Hananiah, which means the Lord is gracious. Meshach's real name was Mishael, which asks, who is like our God? And Abednego, his real name was Azariah, which means the Lord has helped. Predating what the apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, they felt sure That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate them from the love of their God. They remembered who they were. They remembered that the Lord is gracious, that there is nobody like him, and that the Lord helps his children. But finally, their confidence rested On the character and promises of God. See, their faith outran the reality of their circumstances because they knew who God was. They were able to withstand the wrath of King Nebuchadnezzar and the threat of this fiery furnace because they understood God not not only had the ability but the desire to intervene on their behalf. Faith trained their hearts just like it trains ours to believe beyond the present moment, to trust in the goodness of God even when life seems to be falling apart. C.S. Lewis describes the virtue of faith as the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. I think we could reduce that statement and say that faith is the art of Of holding on. Faith is the art of holding on to the promises of God. These three friends knew that even if they died, their God would use their deaths for the redemption of his people. They knew the Lord, they had tasted of his love, and so they were ready 
for whatever came next. They had learned the art of holding on to God's promises. But the story doesn't end there, does it? They don't just get thrown in and that's into the furnace and that's the end. Their response to King Nebuchadnezzar sent him over the edge, vaulting him into an an even deeper state of, of fury. Translated literally, the Hebrew says that the king's face grew violently hot towards them. He wanted the furnace to match his wrath, to match how angry he was. And so the king orders the fire to be heated seven times hotter than normal. In fact, it became so so hot, the strongest men in the king's army burst into flames as they were throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. Now, if I were the king, that would have been a first clue, right? That the people you would order to throw them in had burst into flames and they were fine. Overcome with madness, the king waits for his moment of victory as they fall into the flames, but something else happens. And the king, because he was the closest to the furnace, was the first to notice. He had expected to see them burn. He had expected to see the fire consume them, but they seemed unharmed, untouched by the flames. And a fourth person that looked like a son of the gods walked with them as well. The king was amazed. But if we know anything about our God, maybe we shouldn't be. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had walked with the Lord their entire lives. So for the Lord to walk with them in the flames shouldn't cause us too much surprise. The furnace didn't didn't show anything new, but revealed what was already taking place in their lives. The fire drew back the curtain and showed the king and us what we struggle to see. The Lord is always with his children. Our God is always with us. Our God is always with you. The fourth person in the fire confirms the Lord always walks with his children so that we might be rescued. We are not consumed by the brokenness. We are not consumed by our suffering. We are not consumed by our sorrow or grief. That is the goodness of God. That is what faith teaches us to see and hold on to. Confronted with this obvious display of of God's power and mercy, the king actually changes his tune and he confesses the truth. He says there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way, which is again sort of a, it's almost a summary of all of their Hebrew names. He issues a new decree and he orders that anybody who speak against their God should be punished. And he promotes them to an even greater position, which ensured their deliverance would be known throughout an entire nation that had enslaved them just a few years before. In this pivotal moment, the entire country learns that the God of the Israelites rescues his people. But while the king needed a miracle to understand the character of God, we place our confidence in something even more real. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we trust the eternal reality of God's love and promises, which has been forever defined in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In moments of great pain or sorrow, fear or tragedy, our confidence 
Our faith remains grounded not in what we can accomplish on our own or even our own current experience, but what he has accomplished on our behalf. In an unreliable world, Jesus provides an eternally reliable foundation. John Wesley wrote uh, a, while, a long time ago, in the greatest temptations, a single look to Christ, even barely pronouncing his name, suffices to overcome the wicked one and grants us confidence and calmness of spirit. Faith ties us to the reality of God's goodness so we might remember the certainty of his love for us. So let us rest easy in his grace. Let us rely on the reliable one. Let us become the people that the world can trust so we might stand firm every moment of our lives and when the time comes, enter eternity with assurance. Hallelujah. Amen.